Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening, I'm Yvonne, staff for Science for the Public, and I welcome you to Contemporary Science Issues and Innovations. Our topic tonight is big agriculture's effect on food and health and environment. And our expert is Julie Guthman, professor of social sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Dr. Guthman is a leading scholar on the history of uh, California agriculture. And California is at the, is one of the top uh, agriculture producers in the US. And it has an international influence. Dr. Guthman's research is unique in scope. She looks at agriculture in terms of multiple effects, especially socioeconomic health and environmental effects. She's received multiple book awards, and tonight we'll talk about her book on obesity from a while back, and also her current research on the strawberry industry. This past year, Dr. Guthman has been awarded both a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Francis B. Cashin Fellowship at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Research at Harvard. While she's here at Harvard, she's writing her next book on the uh, soil pathogen that has uh, affected the uh, strawberry industry rather profoundly. We're very honored to welcome Julie Guthman. Thank you and come welcome and welcome to Cambridge too. Yeah, thank you and thank you for having me on the show and I'm very much enjoying being in Cambridge. Oh good, okay. <laughs> then I would like to talk, focus especially on these two books, your current research mainly, okay. but to go back to a book that had, I think was very significant in that it was a more multi-dimensional approach to the issue of obesity. You made some very interesting points, right. starting with the issue of obesity. Right. Well, that was a very controversial book, and I understand that people love to teach it in the classroom oh, because, great. <laughs> because there's always a vigorous debate. But um, I, it really, the book came out of my observations about how the uh, discourse of an obesity epidemic was being used in the alternative food movement. And yeah. a lot of my research has been focused on the politics of the alternative food movement, which is supposed to be in opposition to big ag or industrial food. And I was quite concerned about the way that obesity had crept into that conversation. So the book was really just a, a kind of an examination of all the assumptions mm -hmm. about the obesity epidemic. And, and I, I challenged about seven of them. Yes. Uh, <laughs> would you mention a couple or three well, I challenge, or something? I challenge, I mean, the first one that's important is as I challenge the idea that obesity is necessarily a health problem. I'm not saying it's not a health yes. problem, but the way we understand the relationship between obesity and health is much more complicated than you get from the regular public conversation. And just to give you an example of that, a lot of, um, when we even look at what is a measure of obesity, we look at the body mass index, yes. which is a ratio of weight to height. 
Um, and I, I'm sure most of your listeners and watchers know that if the, that the, the BMI between 20 and 25 is considered normal and between 25 point, or 24.9 and 25 to 29.9 is considered overweight and over 30 is considered obese. Well, there's a bunch of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we even hear of about a rising epidemic, what that means is on, it could mean is on a population basis that one group, uh, you know, on a population-wide basis, there might be an overall gain of, let's say, five to 10 pounds, which is not significant, mm -hmm. but that means huge groups of people move from one category mm -hmm. to the next, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that everybody's really huge. It just means they've gotten a, a little chunkier or whatever, yes, I don't even right. like using that term, than they were maybe a generation ago. Um, but in ter just in terms of the health effects, as it turns out, the epidemiological studies show that people in the, in the overweight category actually have um, longer lifespans than those in the, in the normal category. That is a surprise. That yes. is a surprise. But it's, it's like the, the source of this is somebody who worked for the Center for Disease Control, yeah. and, it's, and she's published a lot yeah, on this. Right, right, right. So there's just so many assumptions like that. Um, so that's one of them, the relationship between food and health. The, the idea that our, our agricultural subsidies are, are making people fat. Um, mm. How about junk food? The, the junk poop, junk, well, junk food. The, and the idea that it's calories alone that are making people bigger, that, okay. it's, that it's people's eating habits. And I think that's probably um, one of the most interesting things I came across. And I, I think at the, and it, what I'm getting at, because already your listeners are probably saying, of course it's calories, of course it's what we eat. Mm -hmm. Oh, first, I mean, just on the calorie business, I mean, now there's a lot of new evidence that it's not only calories, mm -hmm. the calories that, that carbo, you know, that carbohydrates can be right. causing bigness. And there's, right. all, I mean, we don't even Sugar, really understand right. the mechanisms by which people are getting bigger. But the big, the big one was this idea that, it, that we, that people are getting bigger regardless of what they right. eat. And that was one of the best. I've assumed yeah, you're yeah. talking about like endocrine. Yeah, disruptors. I'm talking about the chapter, and now I know more than I did even when I wrote I the see. book. Um, but this is, um, you know, when I was writing the book, I, you know, I'm just a kind of a contrarian, and so I was looking for, I was just kind of curious, and I wondered if there was some role between uh, relationship between environmental toxins and obesity. And I, I looked it up, and I found this article written by this British woman, um, Dr. Paula Bailey Hamilton. And she had, you know, she had a, 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 an article that was all about other possible mm -hmm. um, explanations for obesity that were outside of eating. And, and all sorts of studies that suggested that um, obesity could be related to toxins in the environment. Right. Since she wrote that, there's more and more who have written about this. And, I mean, the, the, one of the main focuses is, has been about endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And there's studies that show that when, um, when lab animals are exposed to chemicals in utero, when um, they will, those that are exposed will become much bigger in adulthood than those who are not, even if they have the same, um, fed the same diet and have mm -hmm, the same mm -hmm. amount of physical activity. Um, okay. So there's that and there and now there's a lot of studies yes, on that and there, you know right. and fo the focus has been on chemicals like bisphenol a yes. in plastic bottles and um, uh, 
phthalates yes. in hair products. Yes. What is it? PF. And that PFOA, which I can never pronounce it either. We can always get the letters mixed up, but it's ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous, and these and these chemicals kind of came on. Well, first of all, it skips a gen or it takes a generation for these things to manifest. So these kind of chemicals came online right when the folks that gave birth to people who are now bigger. Oh, good point. Right? Mm. So there's some, I mean, that's a correlation like mm -hmm. everything else, and there's a lot of correlations in the book I take right, apart, right, but right. I think it's worth considering. And now, you know, there's more evidence about the relationship between stress hormones and mm -hmm, obesity, mm -hmm. like circulating cortisol, um, which may explain some of the, the uh, associations between socioeconomic class mm -hmm. and obesity. Mm -hmm. That's another important thing right. in your book. Right, yes. and, um, and um, our, micro our microbiomes. Yes. You know, right, and, and now there's yes. con a grave concern that our, uh, the ubiquity of antibiotics Absolutely. in the food supply and in right. the environment um, may have affected microbiomes in a way that also may be inducing obesity. Exactly, uh, you came at this with a complex Mm -hmm. a kind of mm -hmm. model was your idea there right. that was particularly interesting and you've pointed out a lot of this is not obvious immediately you right. need time right so a right. generation that right. as you point out right. that will suddenly right. look quite different right and we can't say just stop snacking on the goodies right. there but that right. contributes also and right. we we do see right. it but yeah no I'm not gonna say yes. that um, fast junk food is I'm certainly right. gonna, not gonna say that. it's good for you because right. I don't think it is but I think it's the problems with that kind of food is are problematic regardless of whether it makes people bigger or exactly, not. Exactly, exactly. Right. There were many really very interesting points. Right. Before we leave that book, yeah. I do urge people to read this. It's yeah. very readable for one thing, yeah. uh, for a general public, but it is one of the very few sources where you would see this complexity, yeah. the, the problem itself right. and how it's right. being addressed. Right. You mentioned of, of course, the capitalist aspect of yeah. this, and I wonder if you go into this and the socioeconomics of this problem. Right, well, um, sure. Um, I mean, a lot of my work has looked at how uh, the dynamics of capitalism create some of the problems that we see as, as, um, as that we see as troubling. Um, in that book, I think, I, I think one of the main things I say is that, um, that you know, so much of our political economy is based on excess. Yes, um, and we you know we create a great deal of waste. I do not think that waste is what's making people big. I mm -hmm, want to be really mm -hmm, clear mm -hmm, about mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. But there is this sense in which consumption is supposed to help Materialism, our economy. We're supposed right. to, we're supposed to buy. We're so supposed to purchase that. Right. That helps the economy, and yet we have a culture in which we're supposed to be thin and yes. in, and in control. So yes. that's a paradox. I, right. A contradiction. Yeah. Really, so I that call that the, the kind of um, culture of bulimia. Yes. And I don't mean that in a literal way. Right. I mean that I on one hand we're supposed to consume, and on the other hand we're supposed to not show exactly. it. Exactly. It's more than in food. It's in you know we're supposed to. Um, you know, like the whole feng shui yes. kind of decorative style, right? right? Be right. wealthy enough to get rid of all your stuff. Exactly. <laughs> right. But it, I, that was a, I think, a brilliant point that yeah. you have out of this particular economic 
right. system right. that you must be materialistic or the mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. will fail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so but on the uh, right. other right. hand, and then it's interesting that the food pattern should yeah. Yeah. parallel right. that. And at the same time, you're told to be yeah. skinny as a rail and right. so on. Uh, there's just one more thing, and that is the divide, because it's often brought up that poor people tend to be disproportionately heavy. Right. Uh, and you yeah. had a point about yeah, that. Yeah, well, that, and that's interesting because some of the, um, again, I was combing through evidence, and it's it's uneven evidence, and I right. and I can't tell you that my evidence is better exactly. than the other evidence. Exactly. I, was say, I was looking for things that just to give us pause about our, right. like, our, like, you know, right. What's the word I'm looking for? This kind of power through. This exactly. is the only way we can one think dimensional, of it. Yeah. One dimensional thing. And so one of the things I found is a study that showed that um, people in uh, the lower income brackets did not eat more calories than people in higher income brackets. Yes, that was interesting. Yeah. Oh, and it didn't differ by race either. Right. Um, and so there, but there are other possible possible answers to why poor people are bigger. Um, and one of them is, you know, like, again, the stress hormones. Yes. But it's also, we have to look at the inverse issue, which is um, while being thin doesn't guarantee that you will be wealthy, being fat guarantees that you will not be cut generally. Or disproportionately. Because yes, there yes. is discrimination against fat people yes. all, all along the life cycle right. in schools, in jobs, etc. Yes. So there's other reasons that poor there's an association, yes. a correlation between right. other thin, things that you need to look at. Right. I think was right. a very important right. point right. in right. that. Right. So I urge again, urge people yeah. to take a look at this. Yeah. And researchers also, because one of the problems with modern research, I think it's not just our culture, right. but it's an interesting yeah. thing about modern scientific research is it tends to be hyper narrow. Right. So that people don't look at, uh, right. they spend 40 years looking right. at this one particular right. little right. thing, and factor. And that's what the, the what I get to do is the type of social science that, yes. that I am, and I do engage with science, but I'm also saying, okay, what are the assumptions right. behind right. science? Right, and that comes from the, the, mm -hmm. the social background, the right. social aspect, right. I should say, orientation right. of your uh, a particular background. Yeah. That's very welcome in yeah. any case now. This year you are at Radcliffe having a wonderful time, a you said, time. <laughs> and it's your project time. is a book of all, all things on strawberries. Right. I think this is a favorite fruit everywhere, of course, yes. a major crop, um, and we would not expect a book on strawberries. What would motivate a book on strawberries? It's my second, there's another book on strawberries. I didn't write it. There was I another know, one, but it was on labor. <laughs> um, well, what motivates a book on strawberries? So strawberries are, um, have probably, well, they do have the highest toxic chemical load yes. of any fruit or vegetable. Yes. Always on the top. Uh, and they have list. pretty poor labor conditions as well. <laughs> yes, thanks and for so, bringing that and up. And so strawberries have gotten a, a lot of bad press. Some of it deserved and some of it maybe not. But so strawberries are, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, in some ways a typical high value crop in California, which is, tends to depend on toxic chemicals yes, and tends to much. have poor labor conditions. But strawberries are kind of the pinnacle of that. But what motivated this research was actually, it came from the obesity book, ah. which is 
that there was this fight, this, this regulatory battle over this chemical, methyl iodide. Yes. Methyl iodide was supposed to replace methyl bromide. Methyl bromide has been a um, favored chemical of strawberry producers since 1960s. It's a soil fumigant. Thank you, yes, As okay. is methyl oil iodide. It's a soil fumigant that's used pre-plant, so it doesn't affect yeah, consumers. Yeah. It's used pre-plant to rid the soil of pathogens, nematodes, little worms, and um, weeds. But main, and the fungus? Well, the, pa uh, the, the uh, fungus, Verticillium dolly, which yeah, I'll get to okay. in a minute, is one of these soil pathogens. Okay. It's a soil disease that causes plants to wilt and die. But I'm getting ahead. That's so I right. kind of want to say what motivated this. So there was this big fight over methyl iodide. And um, because it's more toxic than methyl bromide. Methyl bromide was being phased out because it's an ozone-depleting chemical that's no longer allowed by the Montreal Protocol, with some exceptions that do apply to the strawberry industry. So um, methyl iodide, there, uh, for the first time I can remember, a coalition of foodies and environmental activists and farm worker activists and anti-pesticide activists and public health people got together to fight this thing. Um, and I was really interested in that, and I was also interested to know whether the possibility that um, methyl iodide was causing, could be causing, um, having, having epigenetic effects, having, right. uh, having epigenetic yes, effects yes. on farm worker children, yeah, because yes, farm workers yes, are the ones most exposed yes. to it. I was wondering if that was entering the regulatory debate. Well, it turns out it wasn't. But um, but it did get, it was a great question, and it, I got National Science Foundation funding to pursue a project. And, and the project, I got two different grants, actually. And one was looking at, so what happened is methyl iodide was taken off the market because of this regulatory battle. Um, now, that was the first and really bad That one. was a really bad one. Okay. That was a bad one. All the methyl bromide's been around a lot longer. Okay. So I got, a, I got a grant to look at how that happened, looking at the regulatory debate, and then I also got a grant to look at what farmers were going to do without, now without methyl bromide, and now without methyl iodide. Okay. And so um, I wrote a bunch of articles on that, but really this book evolved out of things that I just wasn't expecting. And what I saw was just how um, interlocked the whole strawberry system was, that so many things had co-evolved, um, including fumigation, including plant breeding, including the use of plastic tarps, all these kind of technologies that had evolved to control soil pathogens had now made it near impossible to farm without fumigants. Mm -hmm. And so the book is really about how these advantages to uh, advantages of strawberry growing in California, and there were many advantages, right. turned into a set of threats. Right. And because all these techniques are co-evolved, and, and now the industry is very locked into a particular way of doing things. Yes, is that a, if you, with the scale of the production for one thing, the destruction of the soil uh, yeah. goes in there, but is that like 
interlocked in the sense that it, you get a problem, then you get a solution, then you get a problem as a result of that. Is it all it's like kinda, that? It's kind of like just that, but let me, give messier. You, let me give you a really specific, because it's not, it's, it, 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 let me give you a more specific right, not example. a chain. Yeah, it's not necessarily a chain, and I've been thinking about that very question. Is it, um, when, the, so, fume, so the, I'll, let me just start from here. Mm -hmm. When, um, the strawberry industry was just kind of a specialty crop industry. It wasn't even an industry, and, and um, it just people started growing strawberries for the market in California. Now, there, there were strawberries all over the country. Starting about 1920s, 1930s, they started seeing blight in their fields, and there was a bunch of, there was a lot of different kind of diseases. Um, they went to the University of California, which is a land-grant university, helped them figure out what was going on, and they identified one of these pathogens as being verticillium dahlia, mm -hmm. which is a fungus. So the university got in the, in the business of trying to solve the strawberry industry's uh, problems. And so um, they worked, one of the first things they did, besides identifying the pathogen, is they um, started a plant breeding program. And they were kind of sp supposed to breed for disease resistance, but they started breeding for productivity. Ah. Right? They started bringing, breeding for productivity. And um, they also started breeding for, um, for shipability, so ah, for yes. strawberries that would right. rot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they started breeding for, so by productivity I mean yield. They started breeding for size, because I, I think that's what consumers cosmetics want. Yeah. And they didn't breed for taste much, as we all know. <laughs> so, um, so breeding starts t taking off. Anyway, then they try, but they still have to deal with these pathogens. They try a bunch of different things. Finally, I mean, long story short, they get to fumigation. They start fumigating the 60s. They find that a combination of methyl bromide and chloropicrin work really well together. Chloropicrin is a is a wartime tear gas. Ah, right. That's it was the used in World gas. War That's One, right? You know, and you and, and they and they used to um, what when soldiers had gas masks on, they'd spray or let release chloropicrin, and and the enemy would, and the, and soldiers would tear their their um, gas mask off to vomit because it, it and get the, and oh, get the full geez. array of exposure. So that's chloropicrin. So chloropicrin and, and methyl bromide together was like this, had this uh, je ne sais quoi. It really yes, worked well yeah. for the growers. So once they start fumigating, then growers no longer have to rotate ground. Right. So they start yeah. planting year after year on oh, the same block. And when you do that and, um, and their um, strawberries are grown, strawberries love sandy soil and they love Coastal temperatures, um, the, the temperate temperatures that come off the Pacific Ocean. So they also bred for longevity. I mean, for strawberries to be harvested for a long period of time because unlike, I understand Massachusetts has a three-week strawberry season, <laughs> the strawberry season in California is about 10 months. Wow. Yes. 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 And that's because they have different varietals that grow in different places. Mm -hmm. And they can, and that's why you're getting California strawberries in markets here in in Cambridge and Boston right now because they're coming from California, maybe some from Mexico that are that are have been using varietals that are that like the, the, probably right now they're short day varietals that, mm -hmm. that don't require on a long day. Ah, I to, see. Yeah. So, um, so fumigation 
allows growers to not have to worry about rotating the ground. They now can concentrate all of their breeding on productivity, on extending the length of the season, on um, shippability, <laughs> so they don't have to worry right, about disease right, resistance right, anymore. Right. And then they have, um, then, th then they have this issue of, what, 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 and then they, they, but then they need land. And what happens is all these things come um, together and yeah, come together yeah. and embedded, like for instance, right. in the cost of land. So strawberry land is extraordinarily expensive. It's based on the presumption that you're going to get strawberries year after year they're an extraordinarily high value crop just yeah, to give you a right. sense of what an acre of strawberry land it's right today it's an investment of seventy thousand dollars per acre that's amazing and right now the profits margins are, are coming down for a bunch of different reasons but they're so that means that's they're, they're still significant seventy two thousand yeah. so two thousand an acre so um and the, as I said, they like the same real estate the strawberries do that that suburbanites do. Mm -hmm. So ah, there's other the pressures conflict. on right, strawberry right. land right. than even the the kind of land value of strawberry right, production. Right, and right. You, and so so the strawberry the land prices are going up. They're going to continue to go up even if the strawberry business declines. And so that puts a huge constraint on yes. what growers can do. Yes, right. So there are multiple things Converging. to worry about. You start out with a highly profitable crop. It's worth investing in all the yeah, right. breeding right. effort right. and so on. But there's a very destructive element, first of all, in the soil. Right. But the other, I'm just curious, do you, are you addressing the, the health issue for the workers in the fields that are subjected to this right. stuff? Right. Well, the focus of this book is on soil fumigants and, and as they relate to these soil pathogens. Now, it, as it happens, these fumigants Again, I don't want to um, mislead your your uh, your viewers. They are not. Um, they don't affect consumers mm -hmm, because they're mm -hmm. planted in the ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're put in the ground before planting. Mm -hmm. So the people most affected are those who live or work um, or play nearby these fumigations. Now, the people who apply the fumigants have, are fully. Uh, they have the masks and everything, but there's other people who work on fumigations that are not fully protected. I mean, I've driven through strawberry land and seeing that, you know, they put these plastic tarps on yeah. after they um, fumigate to control to keep the fumigant in and also somewhat is a public health issue. But those, those tarps come loose, they fly up and you see people without any mask going in and shoveling dirt on them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and so there are incidents of pesticide drift. The industry likes to say that they're you know, minor accidents, but yeah. they happen with, <laughs> fair, right. with regularity. And then there's the issue of, you know, the, vulner the, the political vulnerability of these workers, most many of whom, not the fumigation workers, right, right, but many right. of whom are undocumented. That's and, right. And they They're can't very vulnerable. complain. They can't complain. They right. can't complain because they will get in trouble. In the trouble. other, there are two things. We, you started out by saying strawberries are the number one toxic produce. So what is in the strawberries if that's not the fumigants? What is, right. what is well, it I would we're say, getting? I would say the, the highest chemical load, but it, it turns out the strawberries are on um, the environmental working groups, Dirty Dozen, the, they're the top. 
There's um, there's fungi there's um, fungicides. Okay. Um, so that's other stuff is in there too. That, that, so it's not just and the that, soil. And that part. leaves residues, but the right. fumigants don't leave residues. Okay, yeah. got it. The other is we have only like a couple minutes left yeah. here, yeah. but uh, I would like to go back again to this issue of people working around this environment. Yeah. Yeah. You had talked before about you might not. You don't look necessarily at the following two weeks. You might need to look at the next generation. Right. If there are pregnant women right. in those fields right. or right. in that environment, right. Right. for that matter, the men, is it affecting reproduction right. and the Right, thank health? you for asking that. I meant to come back to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so that's a big, that's a big yeah, question. Yeah, it's an unknown, um, is that there it? There is this big study going on in Salinas um, it's called the Chamaco Studies. That's for, it's like an acronym, but it means children in Spanish. Ah. And they're actually following cohorts, and they're finding yes that they're finding all sorts of reproductive issues with from an array of chemicals. Um, as part of my project, we did talk to farm workers, mm -hmm. but the farm workers are, um, I mean, again, they're, they don't necessarily pay attention to fumigants, they just pay attention to what's making of them course. sick. And we did have quite, um, a, I think we talked to um, I think like 70 or so farm workers, and many um, did complain of either having experience or knowing someone who had some miscarriages yeah. or yes. a problematic pregnancies, yeah. and the women in particular were quite nervous about it. But it, we can't really identify from what chemicals, right. but yeah. Yes, right. And some of that stuff, uh, the industry has a way, industries have a way of uh, preventing research <laughs> on right, something, you know, so maybe it hasn't been yeah. researched adequately or yeah. addressed yet. Yeah, um, I, um, I the, the, the industry certainly doesn't particularly like that research on that, but I don't think that the strawberry industry per se okay. is suppressing okay. science. I, 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 you know, I, it's been a tricky yes project because i wanted to talk to the people in the strawberry industry and um i have to i mean i have to take seriously what they have to say of course um to even have that conversation with them i mean i think that the chemical industry um i think that they suppress science but i don't think the strawberry industry does so oh much. no no i meant sorry 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 yes yes because the chemical yeah, industry yeah. is kind of famous for, yeah. for this kind of yeah. thing but in any case that to to just sort of sum up and i'm sorry because this is really very interesting but What's your prognosis for the industry before we close off? Well, that's a chapter I just was working on today. Uh, how about that? Yeah, it's fresh I, in your mind. Although right now it's in that mess. Um, you know, I, I don't. I think that the prognosis. Um, what this? It's really hard to know. I mean, there's several different um, op, uh, options we're looking at for farming without fumigants because finally the strawberry industry is seeing uh, the writing on the wall and they know that the, they're not going to have long the fumigants aren't long for this world for them. Um, so there's different sorts of options ranging from, I mean, some people would love drop-in replacements that just work like the chemicals. Some are looking at um, growing in soilless substrate and kind of greenhouses, which, mm -hmm. which is a terrible solution for mm. California because their biggest competitive advantage is the climate and the soil, and so once they take it into a greenhouse, you're gonna grow strawberries in, in, Alaska, in Boston and New Jersey. <laughs> Um, and apparently New York, New Jersey has lots and lots yeah, of greenhouse right, agriculture. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they're also looking at um, 
anaerobic soil disinfestation, which is adding a carbon source and water and plastic and covering, and they're having mixed results. But here's the main thing. Most of these are going to, um, a lot of the best solutions are capital intensive mm -hmm. and or require knowledge, patience, into, and, and so what's happened, I think at the very least low resource growers are getting shaken out. They already are. Um, now, some people in the strawberry industry would welcome a shakeout because their prices are low. I saw, I saw 99 mm -hmm, cent strawberries mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the other day said, in Boston yeah. that were for a big box. So some would welcome a shakeout, but I don't. I think that's a, that's going to happen regardless. But whether the it, we move to an, a kind of another high tech solution that may or may not work, or try more agroecological techniques. It's tough, and I, even the agroecological techniques are tough because of these issues with land values, mm -hmm. with a, a changed ecology that we don't even have the knowledge. There, right. it's really just yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. able to be studied at this time mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. they're learning mm -hmm. more. Right. Well, I wish you the best. I look forward to the book, yes. certainly. And Me too. I think it's a big, you'll be glad <laughs> when it's all over. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I think it's a wonderful idea. A lot of people yeah, will yeah. Uh, enjoy looking at this because we don't think about yeah. all of this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when we think about those little boxes of strawberries. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us and enjoy the rest of the year at, at Radcliffe. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website www.scienceforthepublic.org for videos of all our events, lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.